Chapter Eighteen, Part Two of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Next morning, Sunday, I heard an eloquent discourse by President Mann in the college chapel and excellent music from a well-trained choir of students. Horace Mann was radical in politics and a rationalist in religion, his friend and prophet being Emerson. The Puritan survived in his ethics and was evoked by the proximity of Memnona, founded by the once famous Dr. T. L. Nichols. Although the community had dissolved, probably because of Horace Mann's denunciations, he was still excited on the subject. An able journalist in Cincinnati, Henry Reed, was ridiculing him sharply on account of the rumored severity of discipline at Antioch. He and Mrs. Mann felt profoundly their responsibility for the success of this experiment in coeducation, of which grievous prognostications existed. They themselves regarded the innovation as perilous, and no doubt the anxieties shortened his life. The fear then was that there would be too much courtship and rash marriages between the students, but now, 1904, some complain that coeducation gives girls an unfortunate disinclination for love affairs and marriage. I do not know that I can do better than insert here my notice in The Dial of May, 1860, of a book printed in Cincinnati at the time, entitled Esperanza my journey thither, and what I found there. I remember well the pains I took to discover the facts concerning Memnona, and to treat with justice the delicate subject, and quote a few items that possess some interest. These reflections have been suggested by the perusal of Esperanza, the land of hope, a work written on the gospel of free love. Perhaps the name of the author might as well have been on the title-page, since it is quite generally indicated that it is the work of Dr. Nichols, late of the community of Memnona, at Yellow Springs, Ohio, later still of the Roman Catholic Church. In what light that church will regard the publication of this novel from the pen of its convert we are not prepared to say. We have heard that the author had concluded his account of Esperanza, by introducing a Catholic father who converts them all to the mother church, and that the publisher, having some authority in the premises, is responsible for the substitution of the weak and diluted dream which concludes the book, in which a spirit inculcates the one-love theory so feebly as to make the free-love portions of it all the more dangerous. Memnona, when, in its most flourishing condition, numbered about twenty inmates. They were generally Eastern and English people, and, we have been credibly informed, were persons who had met with disappointments and grief in the life of the affections, the unrequited or the divorced. It was represented to the country, chiefly through the terrible denunciations of Horace Mann, whose imagination, excited by its proximity to Antioch College, pictured it as, to use his own words, 
the superfetation of diabolism upon polygamy. This community, however, had reason to know that Mr. Mann was mistaken, and that so far from Memnona being a seat of sexual license, it inaugurated in its actual life the asceticism and celibacy which afterwards carried its leading characters into the Church of Rome. Daily confessions and penances were prescribed and obeyed, and when through pecuniary embarrassments, for the community ruined every one who made any investment in it, and the jealousies of human nature, this false thing burst like a bubble, the eight leading persons, including those named in Esperanza, Harmonia, Vincent, Angelo, Eugenia, and the beautiful Melodia, immediately went into the Romish church. Melodia, Miss H., is now a nun in Cuba. Coeducation at Antioch had not grown out of any theory. The plain western farmers wished their sons and daughters to have a good education without sending them east. The various communities wished to obtain good teachers, male and female, without getting them at heavy cost from regions unacquainted with their conditions. That tall, slender, Horace man, with his pure intellectual face beneath its crown of white hair, was steadily giving his heart's blood to achieve a final triumph for American education. He died two or three years after undertaking that work. Antioch flourished for a time under Thomas Hill, afterward president of Harvard, and its subsequent decline was really due to the success of its principal. Other colleges and state universities, now educating persons of both sexes, first got their idea and courage from the experience of Antioch and the leadership of its first president, who has a fitting monument in the Horace Mann Hall at Columbia University, New York. Among the many letters that I received from out-of-the-way people and places, one was dated at Modern Times, New York. It seemed to have come from a place in Bunyan's dreamland. Writing to a friend in New York, I inquired if he knew anything about such a place. It is, he answered, a village on Long Island, founded on the principle that each person shall mind his or her own business. The place seemed even more mythical than before, but one evening when I had been addressing some working men on the relations between capital and labor, a stranger of prepossessing appearance approached me and said, If you ever visit modern times, you will find out that the troubles of labor come from the existence of money. Whereupon he disappeared. During my next summer vacation I visited New York, was ferried over to Brooklyn, and learned that by traveling one or two hours on the railway down Long Island I would come to Thompson's Station, and five or six miles off would find modern times. It was twilight when I reached Thompson's, and there was no means of reaching the village I sought except on foot. That did not matter, for my valise was light, but the road was solitary, sometimes forked, the forest dense, and it became quite dark. At length, however, I reached a more open space, the moon gave some light, and I met a woman who said I was close upon the village. 
I asked if there was any hotel, and she replied, none that I know of, passed on quickly, and left me to consider that more interest in other people's affairs might occasionally be desirable. It was not yet nine, but the street I entered was silent. I had with me a letter once received from modern times, and on inquiry found at last the founder of the village, Josiah Warren. He gave me welcome, and, there being no hotel, and money not being current in the village, I was taken to the house of a gentleman and lady, provided with a supper and an agreeable bedroom, whereof I was in much need. The lady of the house was beautiful, and startled me by an allusion to a utopian village in one of Choka's tales. "'You will not find us,' she said, "'a golden tal. We are rather poor, but if you are interested in our ideas you may find us worthy of a visit.' I have idealized this lovely woman, and, indeed, the village, in my pine and palm. But her actual history was more thrilling than is there told of Maria Shelton, and the village appears to me in the retrospect more romantic than my bonheur. Josiah Warren, then about fifty years of age, was a short, thick-set man with a serene countenance but somewhat restless eye. His forehead was large, descending to a full brow. His lower face was not of equal strength, but indicative of the mild enthusiasm which in later years I found typical of the old English reformer. He was indeed one of these, and I think he had been in Robert Owen's community at New Lanark. He had, however, an entirely original sociology. Convinced that the disproportion between wages and the time and labor spent in production created the evils of drudgery and pauperism, luxury and idleness, he determined to bring about a system of equitable commerce, by which each product should have its price measured by its cost. If it were a shoe, for example, the separate cost of leather, pegs, thread, etc., was to be estimated, and the time taken in putting them together, and the sum would be enough to decide the relative value of the shoe in other articles which the shoemaker might require. With this idea in his mind, he invested what little capital he had in a shop in Cincinnati, where he sold miscellaneous articles somewhat under their prices in other shops. These shopkeepers broke up his establishment by circulating a rumor that Warren was selling off damaged stock. He concluded that his plan could succeed only in a world where other tradesmen adopted it and after some years established a small community at Tuscarawas, Ohio, which was unable to sustain itself, perhaps because of the crudity of the idea as it then stood in his mind. For then some twenty years later he founded modern times, there were other elements introduced. The commercial basis of this village was that cost is the limit of price, and that time is the standard of value. This standard was variable with corn. Another principle was that the most disagreeable labor is entitled to the highest compensation. The social basis of the village was expressed in the phrase individual sovereignty. The principle that there should be absolutely no interference with personal liberty was pressed to an extent which would have delighted Mill and Herbert Spencer. 
this individual sovereignty was encouraged. Nothing was in such disrepute as sameness, nothing more applauded than variety, no fault more venial than eccentricity. The arrangements of marriage were left entirely to the individual men and women. They could be married formally or otherwise, live in the same or separate houses, and have their relation known or unknown. The relation could be dissolved at pleasure without any formulas. Certain customs had grown out of this absence of marriage laws. Privacy was general. It was not polite to inquire who might be the father of a newly-born child, or who was the husband or wife of any one. Those who stood in the relation of husband or wife wore upon the finger a red thread. So long as that badge was visible, the person was understood to be married. If it disappeared, the marriage was at an end. The village consisted of about fifty cottages, neat and cheerful in their green and white, nearly all with well-tilled gardens. They all gathered in their little temple, the men rather disappointing me by the lack of individuality in their dress, but the ladies exhibiting a variety of pleasing costumes. For a time it was a silent meeting. Then the entire company joined in singing, There's a good time coming, and after I had read some passages from the Bible and from Emerson, another hymn was sung concerning an expected day, when the might with the right and the truth shall be. After my discourse, which was upon the spirit of the age, it was announced that there would be in the afternoon a meeting for conversation. The afternoon discussion ranged over the problems of education, law, politics, sex, trade, marriage. It exhibited every kind of ability, and also illustrated the principle of individuality to the rare extent of in no wise exciting a dispute or a sharp word. Except that all were unorthodox, each had an opinion of his or her own, this being so frankly expressed that behind each opened a vista of strange experiences. Josiah Warren showed me through his printing office and other institutions of the place. He also gave me one of the little notes used as currency among them. It has at one end an oval engraving of commerce with a barrel and a box beside her, and a ship nearby, at the other end a device of atlas supporting the sphere, beneath this a watch, and between these the words, Time is Wealth. In the center is a figure of justice with scales and sword, also a sister genius with spear and wreath whose name I do not know between these being a shield inscribed, Labor for Labor. Above these the following, not transferable, Limit of Issue, two hundred hours. The most disagreeable labor is entitled to the highest compensation, due to blank five hours in professional services, or eighty pounds of corn. Then follows a written signature and the engraved word, Physician. Late in the evening a little company gathered in the porch of the house in which I was staying, where there was informal conversation and now and then a song. Out there in the moonlight went on an exchange of confidences, however abstract the phrases, beyond the soft tones, 
I could hear the shriek of tempests that wreck lives. Not from happy homes had gathered these Thelemites, with their motto, Fais ce que voudra. Some years later, when the plague of war was filling the land, I thought of their retreat as not so much a Thelem, as a garden like that outside Florence, where Boccaccio pictures his ladies and gentlemen beguiling each other with beautiful tales, while the plague was raging in the city. Modern times had not been founded with reference to war. These gentle people had suffered enough of life's struggle, and desired only to be left in peace. But where could peace be found? I never visited modern times again, but heard that soon after the war broke out, most of those I had seen there sailed from Montauk Point on a small ship, and fixed their tents on some peaceful shore in South America. Some of the most interesting citizens of Cincinnati were Germans. We owed their leaders to the revolutions of 1848, among these August Willich. He became known in the Civil War as Major Willich. The late Judge Stallo told me that it was believed by himself and the other Germans that Willich bore in his veins the blood of the royal family of Prussia. He was a soldier in the Prussian army until 1846, but having joined the band for the liberation of Germany, he was compelled to resign at Wesel. He at once set himself to learn the carpenter's trade. Willich was eloquent, and the working men drew him from his carpenter's shop to become their leader. He committed, said Stallo, enough political offenses to have cost him his head a dozen times, had he not been a natural son of one of the royal family. When the revolution of Baden broke out, he became the impassioned leader of that revolution, and when it failed, Willich was saved from execution in a curious way. He was removed secretly from his prison in the dead of night, and transferred to a ship bound for London, under pledge that he would never return to Germany, a considerable amount of money being given to him. From London he went to New York, where he set up as a carpenter. It was presently discovered, however, that he was an educated man, and he was given a place in the Coast Survey. There Judge Stallo made his acquaintance, and invited Willich to go to Cincinnati and edit the Republicaner. Willich made it a strong and radical paper. When Orsini was executed, Willich, who had known him well, headed a great funeral torchlight procession, and under his leadership a similar procession took place amid many threats when John Brown of Harper's Ferry was executed. In after years, when I saw Garibaldi in London, I felt as if I had met him before, in the form of my old friend Willich. About a year after entering my ministry in Cincinnati, I published there my first volume, the title being Tracts for Today. It was inscribed as follows. To my parents, I dedicate this book, knowing that, whatever they shall find here which shall recall painful differences of belief, it would grieve them far more to think that I had swerved from the lessons of directness and sincerity which, by word and life, they have ever taught as before all, 
and which they have a right to claim from me, always and everywhere. On the day of my settlement at Cincinnati, a friend said to me, There are about ten millions of dollars in that congregation. It had long centuries ago ceased to be hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, in its other-worldly sense, but unorthodoxy was steadily shifting the aim of religion from heaven to earth. The conventionalized heavenly dove has wings covered with gold, as the psalmist describes one, but the religious spirit dealing with the secular world is rather the dove of Jeremiah, whose fierceness astonished the land. All manner of reforms, the visionary along with the rational, the revolutionary and the peaceful, nestle under the wings of humanitarian religion, and wealth is shy of it. I inaugurated my work with the words, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and meant it in a formidable sense. The fugitive slave seized and returned to bondage was Jesus pierced on His cross. I saw beautiful reason, crucified on the cross of superstition, and human happiness bearing a crushing cross in the Protestant asceticism which repressed the joyousness of the young. I demanded that woman should be taken down from her cross and given freedom and occupation. I pleaded for the establishment of a hospital for inebriates, and even dealt with the terrible subject of prostitution. Our city, I declared, would not be even semi-Christian until it built a foundling hospital, and also an attractive home for the cruelly outcast, well furnished with kind hearts, which should say, We are not here to condemn thee. Come in peace. So did I confront the conservatism and wealth of my church, and they stood by me from first to last. For a long time I adhered to the sacrament. On one such occasion Emerson was in the church. Had I known or remembered that it was on the point of his unwillingness to administer the Lord's Supper that Emerson left the Unitarian ministry, 1832, I might have been somewhat abashed at seeing him in the pew of a prominent member. The subject was Jesus giving the bread and wine to Judas. It had been the usage of my predecessors in the pulpit to dismiss the general congregation, communicants only remaining. This, however, was inconsistent with my interpretation of the sacrament as a simple memorial of self-sacrifice in which I wished all, and even children, to unite. But in this discourse I made it also a memorial of the boundless love which animated a great heart, and could not exclude even its betrayer. Emerson waited for me at the door, and asked me to go with him to his room in the Burnett House. There he spoke, concerning my sermon, words that gave me great encouragement. He never said a word about the sacrament, but that was the last time I ever administered it. I found that some of the best people in my congregation could not conscientiously participate in an observance so generally associated with a dogma of sacrificial religion. One wintry night I was awakened by a knock at my door. It was after midnight, 
and I inquired from a window who was there. A woman said that in a tenement nearby a poor woman was dying, and begged me to come in and see her. She probably thought I was a priest, for when I reached the dying woman she desired a priest. There was a residence of priests near the cathedral, and I dispatched a messenger to summon one. An elderly little priest came, whom I had never seen, but presently discovered to be the archbishop himself, Dr. Purcell. Instead of waking a younger priest, the old prelate had come himself through the cold, and I left him in the miserable room with the dying woman. The archbishop spoke to me in a friendly way, but I supposed that he did not know what a heretic I was. Nevertheless, after my sermons demanding hospitals for inebriates and foundlings and a home for the outcast were reported in the papers, Dr. Purcell called on me. Wide apart as we were in religious belief, we had met beside the deathbed of a dying pauper, and now we met again by the side of the perishing classes in our city. He came to confirm, from his long experience in Cincinnati, all that I had said, especially my assertion that it was not sensuality that led women into vice, but that the want of lucrative occupation left them no alternatives but physical or moral suicide. Archbishop Purcell said that if I could persuade the wealthy men of my church to start a movement for building those hospitals, he would find good women to attend to their inmates, without the slightest desire to make them Catholics. He declared that there was in Cincinnati enough wasted moral energy, represented in the enforced idleness of female hearts and minds, to make our city healthy and happy. In the course of our conversation the archbishop told me that he was a native of Cork, and when he came to America in early life intended to enter on a mission in Virginia, but he found the country places too thinly populated. About seven miles out of Richmond he saw a solitary man lying on the grass to whom he put questions, receiving lazy yes and no responses. Presently he inquired to what churches his neighbors went. Well, not much of any. What are their religious views? Well, not much of any. Well, my friend, what are your opinions on religion? My notion is that them as made me will take care of me. I felt certain of Dr. Purcell's good faith in his proposal about the suggested hospitals, and had not inhuman war presently overwhelmed humane projects, it is probable that he and I, from our opposite poles, would have cooperated in that enterprise with success. As it was, I received an invitation from the Roman Catholics to give a lecture in St. Nicholas Institute, and it was delivered to a large audience. This fraternization between Romanism and rationalism did not fail to excite surprise, eliciting comments in pulpit and press, the secret of that strange proceeding being known only to my personal friends. Although I had become notorious in Unitarian associations for indifference to the denominational propaganda, and was criticized by some leaders for my unsoundness, it was recognized by others that I had reached the heart of thinking people 
in the general community to an extent unusual with Unitarian societies. Though some ministers were raising me to the dignity of a heretic, I could hardly comply with the demands that came from all sides. I lectured twice to the German Turners, to the assembled Jewish societies, and to the assembled actors. These functions excited less surprise than the fact that for a month I filled evening appointments in a vacant Methodist Episcopal pulpit in the suburbs, and preached twice in a Methodist Protestant church. In none of these outside ministrations was the slightest restriction imposed on my utterance. I suppose, indeed, that the invitations were prompted by curiosity to hear new views much alluded to in the city papers. One event excited universal interest. The most eminent Presbyterian in our neighborhood was the Rev. Dr. Henry Smith, president of Lane Seminary, a noted theological Presbyterian institution. Dr. Smith was a learned man and earnest preacher. I was invited by his students to give a lecture in their literary course, and my care to abstain from theology no doubt pleased the president. After some conversation he agreed to occupy my pulpit on some Sunday morning, and give a statement and explanation of his religious creed. The occasion was one memorable in the religious history of Cincinnati. The audience was large and intelligent, and the discourse simple, sincere, and deeply interesting. It was reviewed by me on the following Sunday, in a friendly spirit. End of chapter 18, part 2